Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. I trusted Christ as my Savior as an eight-year-old child in a VBS. I was called to ministry and surrendered to the Lord's prompting in my heart to go into ministry as a 17-year-old at a youth camp. So I resonate fully with what you're doing for your kids this summer. That was amazing to see. And we'll be praying for your VBS coming up too, that it will produce fruit that will uh, be for eternity. Well, Jeannie and I are glad to be here again, not just because we always love being with you, because of something that happened this morning uh, to us. We, because you never know what you're going to face on the turnpike. Uh, I have missed a service before because of a delay on the turnpike. So we came up last night, got a motel, decided to be here plenty early, be not, you know, no rush this morning. At 4.30 this morning, I hear this loud beeping sound, and I looked at my phone, I thought it was my phone alarm, and 4.30, no, it's not my phone alarm. And about that time, I heard someone yelling in the hallway, fire, evacuate the building. Now, this is not a joke evacuate the building. And so, you know, Jeannie and I quickly got outside. Everybody else is out in the parking lot. South Charleston Fire Department is there. And Jeannie and I began to reminisce about a time in the 80s in northern Indiana. We were serving a church in the Fort Wayne, Indiana area. And we had done a leadership retreat over a weekend in November. We had all of our leaders there to strategize and plan. We had our wives with us at the historic Winona Lake Hotel. Great place. Well, we were evacuated in the middle of the night with a fire alarm as well. And Jeannie and I were reminiscing. It's funny how what you pick up to take with you shows what you think is really important in a time like that. I remember one of the guys, an elderly gentleman who uh, back in the 80s in our church in Indiana, who uh, we all got our coats because it's cold in Northern Indiana in November. But I noticed he was talking with me. He had his Bible, which said a lot to me, but he had forgotten his teeth well, you know, the first, the first thing I grabbed this morning was my Bible. It had my sermon notes in it. And I, then I thought, you know, I probably ought to get my wallet and my car keys at least. And so, uh, you know, I'm thankful it was a false alarm. I would have been able to preach this morning, but I may have been up here in my pajamas. So aren't you glad it was a false alarm? Well, uh, another story to tell the grandkids, I guess. Another exciting story. We all use descriptive statements to define who we are, and often those statements begin with these two words, I am. Sometimes we use those words to describe ourselves in terms of our work or our profession. I am a teacher, I am a lawyer, I am a homemaker, I am accountant, I am a photographer. Sometimes we use those words to describe ourselves in terms of our relationships. For instance, I am a child of God. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a brother. I'm a friend. I'm a neighbor. I'm a citizen of the United States. And there are other things, obviously, we could all say about who we are that way. Sometimes we use those two words to define our superiority. In practically every sport, analysts in that sport will debate about who is the goat, who is the greatest of all time. Well, Muhammad Ali settled that for all sports a long time ago when he just simply said, I am the greatest. So sometimes we use that to define superiority. Well, 
what about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Are there any descriptive statements like that in the Bible that define who Jesus is? Well, obviously the answer is yes. You read the epistles and you'll find all kinds of descriptive statements that define Jesus in terms of his work, his relationships, his superiority. But there is a cluster of I am statements about Jesus uttered by himself in the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're going to look very briefly at eight I am statements that Jesus made recorded in the Gospel of John. What we will see as we look at those statements is this. Jesus does what he does because he is who he is. Jesus does what he does because he is who he is. Let's look at John chapter six for the first of those I am statements where we find that Jesus is the provision for our need. Jesus is the provision for our need. In John six, verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The backstory to that statement is absolutely critical. Jesus' fame is growing, the crowds are immense, there is nonstop ministry, and the disciples are exhausted. So Jesus says, come aside for a little while and rest. Well, the crowds follow them, and so Jesus ministers to them once again for an entire day. At the end of that day is the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, probably 15,000 in all people who were gathered there. Well, now the disciples are absolutely exhausted. And so Jesus sends them off in a boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. But you may recall there was a huge storm that night on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And as he gets to the boat, they are immediately at the other side of the shore. But somehow the crowds find them once again. And verse 26 or verse 25 of John chapter 6 says, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now that question really is framed this way. Who do you think you are? How dare you try to get away from us and go where we can't find you? So Jesus exposes their hearts. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So Jesus basically says there are two kinds of food, food that perishes and food that lasts forever. Now, if you have teenagers, you know about the kind of food that perishes. You know, you buy a cartload of groceries, you get it home, the next day you're looking for something to fix a meal and everything's gone. It's vanished, it's perished, it's gone. Well, Jesus basically, his point is to show that there are two kinds of provision. There is physical provision that never lasts. And there is a spiritual provision which lasts forever. He is really contrasting two ways of looking at life. 
You can live for things that are temporary, that never really satisfy you, or you can live for eternal realities that will satisfy you forever with eternal life. And that's why Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is God's provision for our greatest need. Our greatest need is not physical. Our greatest need is spiritual. Our greatest hunger is not physical hunger. Our greatest hunger is spiritual hunger. And Jesus is God's provision for that. If you receive Jesus, you will find that your needs, your greatest needs, eternal Spiritual needs are met for eternity. You will live forever. You will be fully satisfied spiritually in Jesus Christ. But maybe you keep feeding on temporary things of life and find yourself never satisfied, always empty. If that describes you, come to Jesus because he is the provision for our need. The second I am in John's gospel is found in chapter 8, verse 12, where we find that Jesus is the deliverance from our darkness. John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, in John 8, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of the three feasts that every Jewish male was required to attend. So there are huge crowds at this feast. This particular feast was to help them remember the wilderness journey of their forefathers, the way God had led them and provided for them in the wilderness. And there were two great ceremonies at the Feast of Tabernacles. The first was the ceremony of the pouring out of water. Water would be brought from the spring of Siloam into the temple and poured out in a magnificent display. On that occasion, Jesus stood up, John 7 tells us, in a loud voice said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. There was a second great ceremony called the illumination of the temple. It was a fantastic ceremony. It was stunning. There were four great torches that were set up in the temple, in the main part of the temple. Jewish historians tell us they were higher than the highest walls of the temple. Each one of those four torches had a bowl on top that held 65 liters of oil. At night, they would be lit up and the flame that would burst forth from those four torches would light up the whole temple grounds and most of the city of Jerusalem. It was spectacular. The Jewish Mishnah, which is the first recording of Jewish traditions, tells us that that signaled a time of great celebration. Music and dancing that would go late into the night as they celebrated the provision of God of the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day to lead the people of Israel through the wilderness. Jesus is saying, no doubt, he steps up, stood up in the temple with those four torches still charred at the top from the night before and says, 
I am the light of the world. He was claiming to be the fulfillment of all of that Old Testament leading of God in the wilderness to dispel the darkness so that the people of Israel could see where they were going, even in the dark. Jesus is saying, I'm the light. I will deliver you from spiritual darkness. If you do not have Jesus, you are in spiritual darkness without God, without hope without understanding. You're stumbling through life trying to find some new way to bring a little bit of light to your existence. Maybe some new self-help technique or some new philosophy or some new teaching or some new lifestyle or some new diet or workout program or some new master plan that will help you get it all together or some new religion or some new relationship, but still the darkness creeps back in and nothing really dispels that darkness that you've ever tried. So you grasp in the darkness for something else. If that describes you this morning, come to Jesus because he is the deliverance from our darkness. He is the light of the world. He will blast away your darkness and give you, as he calls it, the light of life. The light of life, a light that will exist forever in your soul, the light of eternal life. Come to Jesus. He is the light in our darkness. The third I am statement in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 10. So look at it with me, John chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus basically tells us he is our protector and our provider. In verse 7, he says, Jesus said, therefore Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Then down in verse 10, or excuse me, verse, verse 9, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved, they will come in and go out and find pasture. George Adam Smith was probably the greatest Old Testament scholar and a uh, expert on the Holy Land back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, wrote a book called The Historical Geography of the Holy Land that was a textbook, a classic textbook in most seminaries back in the 20th century. When he was in Israel one time, he was traveling with a guide. They came across a shepherd with some sheep and the shepherd took him to show him the sheepfold. It was basically an enclosure on four sides, just built of stone, and it had an opening in one of those sides for the sheep to go in and come out. And so George Adam Smith asked the shepherd, is this where the sheep go at night? And the shepherd said, yes, once they go in the sheepfold, they are safe. Well, Smith asked him, he said, there's no door. There's just an opening. And the shepherd said, well, I am the door. Now, he was not a believer. He was not speaking in New Testament terminology. He was just speaking as an Arab shepherd, explaining the custom of the day. And George Adam Smith asked him, what do you mean, I am the door? And he said, well, when the sheep go in at night, I lie down in front of that opening. No sheep can get out unless they come across my body. No wolf can come in unless he goes across my body. I am the door. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about. 
First of all, Jesus is the one who keeps the sheep in. He is our protector. You see there in verse nine, first part of the verse, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, will be delivered from danger, will be safe. Because why? The wolf can't get in. Think of Satan. He can't get to you. You are secure in the fold. We speak of that in terms of the doctrine of eternal security, which means if you are truly born again, if you have been regenerated, you're a follower of Christ, then you can never lose your salvation. And my friend, that has nothing to do with what you do. You don't need to keep it or maintain it or hope you hang on. It's all up to him. He is the door who serves as the protector for the sheep. You can't get out without going through him. Jesus said it this way himself, indicating how important it is for us to understand this is all of him in chapter six of John. Look at these verses. Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Notice that doesn't say anything about you and your ability to keep your salvation. It all has to do with the Father's will and the Son keeping you. Jesus said something very similar in chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. I give them, that's my sheep that he's talked about in verse 27, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. By the way, in the Greek, the original language, that's a triple negative. It could be translated, they shall never, no, never perish. I mean, it's that definite. No one, he says, can snatch them out of my hand. Again, think of Satan, the, the wolf, the thief. Think also of yourself. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. My friend, your eternal security is not based on you. It is based on him, on Christ, his power, his keeping ability, and the Father's will that he would lose none of those that he has given to his Son. Thank God he is our protector, but he is also our provider. Notice at the second part of verse 9. They, the sheep, will come in and go out and find pasture. So again, Jesus is the shepherd, the door. None of the sheep can go out except through him and until he is ready to lead them out. But when he is ready to lead them out, he leads them out into green pastures and besides still waters and makes sure that all of their needs are cared for. He knows exactly what the sheep need, what kind of food, what food is poisonous, direct them away from that, where the, so the soft streams are that will not frighten the sheep. He knows exactly what our needs are and he provides all of our needs. He is our protector and our provider. Do you want a life like that where you know that you are secure and provided for? Then come to Jesus because he is our protector and our provider. The fourth I am statement in John's gospel is in chapter 10. Also, it's found twice in verse 11. First of all, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his, his life for the sheep. And then down in verse 14, he repeats it. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep 
know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd. There are two words in the Greek language that are translated by the same word good in our English translations. The one that's used here means to be good intrinsically or to be beautiful. That's literally the meaning of the term. He is the beautiful shepherd. Now, don't think of beauty in terms of physical beauty. Think of it in terms of something that is so stunning and awesome to you. It is indescribable. You can't find the words to describe it. It is just unexplainable, inconceivable. You can't wrap your mind around it. Let's, let's uh, say you're looking at the Grand Canyon and you, you just your jaw drops and there's no words to explain it. There's nothing you can do to wrap your mind around the grandeur, the glory, the awesomeness of that experience. That's the beauty, what the Old Testament calls the beauty of God's holiness. And that's Jesus, the beautiful shepherd. Well, how, how is it that he is so beautiful, so awe-inspiring, so awesome and glorious and majestic? Well, first of all, because he died for us. As the beautiful shepherd, he died for us. Four times in this context, it is said that he lays down his life for the sheep. We saw it mentioned twice. Four times in this passage, he lays down his life for the sheep. In contrast, the image of the hired hand, which he mentions in verses 12 and 13, the hired hand, who's not really the beautiful, good shepherd, the hired hand, when he sees the wolf coming, he, he saves his own skin. He takes off. Don't care about the sheep. I'm going to get my own self out of here. Jesus would not do that. Jesus came to bear our sin in his own body on the tree, on the cross. He paid the penalty for all of our sins because he's the beautiful shepherd who cares more about the sheep than his own life and is willing to sacrifice his life for the sheep. Paul struggles with words to explain this because it's inconceivable. It is inexplainable. It is indescribable. But he's, Paul tries to describe it with a, a likeness, with a simile, a comparison. In Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, look at these verses. Paul says, for rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, some might possibly die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see the comparison there? Who would you be willing to give your life for? Probably anyone in your family. That's maybe a given. But anyone else? Well, boy, that's pretty rare that you'd be willing to give your life for someone else. Maybe for a, a righteous person. Maybe for someone who's been very good to you. But that'd still be pretty rare. But Jesus died for all of us when we were sinners in rebellion against God, in hostility toward him, that's indescribable. That's inconceivable that he would love us that much because he is the beautiful shepherd, the good shepherd. But not only did he die for us, he knows us. That's another reason why he is the beautiful shepherd. He knows us. And that's what verse, verse 14 is all about. He says, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. And he says, my knowledge of the sheep in verse 15 is just like the Father's knowledge of me and my knowledge of the Father. In other words, it's infinite. It's perfect. It's complete. He knows every detail about you. 
He knows your nature, your personality. He knows all of your needs. He knows all of your thoughts. Psalm 139 says, before you even think them. He knows all of your words before they're even formed. Psalm 139 says, he knows all of your actions, all of your attitudes. And get this, he still loves you. He knows everything about you and he still loves you. That is inconceivable. That is indescribable love. Do you want someone in your life who knows everything about you and still loves you and loves you enough to lay down his life for you? Then come to Jesus. Come to Jesus because he is our good shepherd. The fifth I am statement in John's gospel is in chapter 11 and verse 25, where Jesus describes himself as our conqueror over death. Chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. You remember this story. It's the familiar story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus Mary and Martha, his two sisters, they were specially close to Jesus. They often entertained him in their home when Jesus would be in the, the area of Jerusalem. And so when Lazarus gets sick, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, and here's how they phrase that telegram. The one you love is sick. No doubt that will prompt him to come. Prompt him to come and raise Lazarus up from his illness but Jesus waits where he is for two days. And by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Both Martha and Mary meet Jesus as he shows up. And notice what Martha says in verse 21. If you have your Bible open, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then down in verse 32, Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You hear what they're saying? It's those if-only statements. Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Both of them were feeling that. Here's what they were saying. Why did you let this happen? Why didn't you come when we sent for you? How could you let Lazarus die? We don't understand you ever been there? Probably most of us in this room have been there where you've cried out that question to God. Where were you when my loved one died? Where were you when my marriage was failing? Where were you when my parents divorced? Where were you when my alcoholic father was beating me in a rage? Where were you when I got cheated out of that promotion? Where were you when my child went astray and broke my heart? All of us have cried out like that at some point to God. Now, there are two ways to ask those kinds of if-only questions. One is in anger and bitterness, and if that's the way you cry out to God, it will eat you alive and destroy you on the inside. The other way to ask those questions is like Mary and Martha did with an underlying confidence of faith and reverence for who Jesus is. They both called him Lord. Martha says, after Jesus says, uh, after she said, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. 
And Mary bows at his feet in reverence. You see, there is a way to be puzzled, to not understand what God's doing and pour out your heart to him, but have that, that underlying confidence of faith and submission to him. How could they do that? How can you do that? How can I do that? It's because they knew Jesus and they knew him well. And that's why Jesus is comfortable taking their attention away from Lazarus' death and even away from the resurrection and pointing their minds to him. Because notice what happens in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. It's like she pulls that off of her shelf of theological truths. Oh yeah, this fits in the eschatology category. It's here under return of Christ and subset of resurrection. Oh yeah, I believe that. I know that. I can pull that out. But Jesus says, oh, wait a second. The resurrection is not just an event. The resurrection is a person. And that person is me. I am the resurrection and the life. If you have Jesus, notice what the resurrection means for you there in verse 25. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. In other words, when you die, you're still alive. You say, that doesn't make sense. Well, if, if you know Christ, it does. Because the Bible teaches that the moment a believer dies, you immediately go through a door into his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that, that is the hope we have in Christ. If you know Jesus, you never really die. You just go through a doorway into his presence. And it gets even better than that. And whoever, verse 26, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So he's saying, whoever fits what I said in verse 25, you live, you've gone through that door of death into my presence, you live, then you will never die. You say, well, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. I just died. That's how I got here in heaven. Oh, so Jesus must be talking about another death. What the Bible calls the second death, eternal death, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. You see, my friend, if you know Jesus as your savior, not only is death a doorway into his presence, but you will never experience the second death. You will never experience the lake of fire. Your sins have been covered and taken care of and taken away forever. You want someone who can do that for you, who can make death simply a doorway into his presence and can assure you that you will never face the judgment of God in the lake of fire. You want someone like that? Come to Jesus. He is our conqueror over death. The sixth I am statement is a very familiar one, John 14, where Jesus tells us he is our only way of salvation. Jesus says in John 14, 6, don't you know me, or excuse me, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. He's been telling them in chapter 13 that he's going to leave them and where he's going, they can't come. He opens chapter 14 by telling, him, telling them where that is. He says, I'm going to the Father's house and I'm gonna prepare a place for you there and then I'm gonna come back and get you and take you to that place. By this time, they are thoroughly confused. You're, you're going somewhere, we can't follow you. You're going to the Father's house? What does that mean? And you're going to come back and get us? And they're thoroughly confused. And so Thomas voices their confusion in verse five when he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And that's where Jesus answers. Obviously, he's talking about going to heaven 
to the Father's house to prepare a place for us. After his death and resurrection, he will go back to heaven. So obviously he's talking about the way to heaven, the way of salvation. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. Notice he did not say, I'm teaching you the way or I'm gonna point you to the way. That's what every religious leader of every major world religion and religious system has done. Oh, I'll teach you the way. I'll point you the way. No, no, Jesus said, I am the way. And notice he does not say, I am a way or I am one of the ways. He says, I am the way, the only way of salvation, the only way to heaven. We live in a pluralistic culture, a culture of relativism, which basically says there are no absolutes and every idea has equal validity. So we don't, in the culture at least, people don't like to hear this. There's only one way of salvation. You mean my religion's not gonna get me there? But my friend, this is a blessed exclusivism. You see, none of us have ever passed through death's door. That's not scientifically verifiable. We don't know scientifically what happens on the other side, but there has been one who came from the other side to this earth to tell us there's only one way to get to heaven, and I am the way. So what that means is you can be sure. You don't have to wonder if your religion's good enough, if your works are good enough, if you can do enough, pray hard enough, work hard enough, hang on long enough. You don't have to worry about any of that because Jesus is the way. And he goes on to say, I'm the truth. So you can trust him. He's the source of all truth. And he is the life. He is the source of eternal life. I love the way John summarizes this in chapter five of his little epistle, 1 John. He says this, this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's that simple. In order to have eternal life, in order to know that you're saved, in order to know that you're going to heaven, you need Jesus. Do you want to know for sure that you have eternal life and that you're going to heaven? Come to Jesus. Then the sixth or seventh statement is in John chapter 15, verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Again in verse five, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the producer of fruit in our lives. There's a lot about this story. We don't have the time to develop uh, the gardener, the fruitless branches, the casting of them into the fire, all of of that, Uh, you know, the pruning, the abiding. We don't have time to deal with all of that. The main point of this teaching of Jesus, the essence of it is this. You cannot bear fruit on your own. You cannot. Now, the fruit here is not soul winning. It's not winning souls to Christ. The Greek word karpos, fruit, occurs 66 times in the New Testament. With one exception only, and it's not here, it always means the fruit, the evidence of true godly life in our lives, true godliness, Christ-likeness in our lives. So Jesus is talking about the fruit that we bear is godly living and Christ-like character. I mean, think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, self-control, things like that. That's what he's talking about. And there's only one way you can bear that kind of fruit is by being connected to the vine so that the life of the vine is flowing through you to produce the fruit. 
You cannot become more self-controlled, more joyful, more gentle, more kind, any of those things by trying hard. But oh, how we try to do it. New Year's resolutions, times when we get irritated ourselves for what we've done. And we, I've got to really work on being more gentle. I've got to work on being more faithful. I've got to work on being more self-controlled. No, you don't, my friend. You need to gaze on Jesus. Nowhere better is the theme verse for this month of 2 Corinthians 3.18 seen than right here. How do you grow in Christ? How do you produce godly character? It is, as that passage says, by beholding Christ as in a mirror, the word of God, so that you are transformed from glory to glory to be more like him. That's how you bear fruit. Jesus is the producer of fruit in our lives. Quickly, there's one final I am. I've left it till last. John chapter eight and verse 58, where Jesus says, I am the great I am. Again, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's been making claims before the religious leaders, none of which they understand. They are, they are completely uh, clueless as to what he's saying. In verse 53, they say, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? They don't understand what he's talking about at all. And then Jesus utters this thunderbolt. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if Jesus was just talking about he existed before Abraham, which is amazing enough, this is a grammatical error, if that's what he was talking about. Jesus should have said, before Abraham was, I was, or before Abraham was born, I was born. That would be grammatically correct, but Jesus is talking about a whole lot more here. Jesus is actually referring back to the Old Testament, and the Jews got this, back to Exodus 3 where God has told Moses, you're to be the one to deliver my people. And Moses is protesting. And in Exodus 3, Moses says this, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Well, you can't stump God with a question like that. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That comes from the Hebrew verb to be. And the letters of that Hebrew verb literally spell out the name Yahweh, or we know it as Jehovah. It's translated in our English translations by Lord, all capital letters. It's the personal name for God. And the Jews understood what Jesus was doing here. He was claiming equality with Yahweh, the God of Israel. They got it because they picked up stones to stone him. They thought he was blaspheming. But Jesus is the I am. He is the eternal God, self-existent, creator and sustainer of the universe, unchanging in his being and character. He is the great I am. So my friend, Jesus does what he does because he is who he is. Jesus does what he does because he is the great I am. He offers to provide for your greatest need, which is spiritual. 
He offers to obliterate your spiritual darkness, to be your protector and provider, to be the beautiful shepherd who knows everything about you and still died for you. He offers to shatter the power of death and and fear of death in your life. He offers to provide certain salvation and produce godly character in your life because he is the great I am. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we fall before you in worship, the great I am. We know you can do all things that we need, all things you know we need because of who you are, the great I am. Bring who you are to every person here today to meet the greatest needs of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center. 